it's May 2nd, 2022. This is Rook. He is an Iranian-American who came to international attention in 2018 for his heroic actions in saving 381 lives on a United Airlines flight from San Francisco to Hawaii. Captain Christopher Borzubehnam is a pilot, aviation expert, motivational speaker, and Iranian human rights advocate. He joins me from California today for a wide-ranging interview about his story, his upbringing in Iran, his dream job as a pilot, and his philosophy of life being being a one-way ticket after cheating death a few times in his journey. Captain Behnam coming up. This is Conversations from, to, and about the Iranian diaspora. I'm Gian Gomeshi. This is Rook. Welcome to episode 177 of Rook. Hope you are keeping well. Wherever you're tuning in from around the world. Hello to you from Toronto, Canada. Salam Dustan Aziz. Durud Bashama. Uh any of you guys actually be honest, be rook. Mm-hmm. Be rook. Sure. Uh are any of you or have any of you felt fear whilst flying? Like, have you been on a plane and kind of got a little, a little, you know, uh, wondering what's happening? I'm getting a little sweaty. There's a lot of turbulence. Anything? Sure. <laughs> you feel and that you way? Want, you want the truth? Yeah, the truth. Uh, I, want, I want the truth. You, you can, want, no. can you handle the truth? <laughs> you can't handle the truth. <laughs> what is the truth? Uh, the truth is that I kind of like it, actually. The turbulence makes me feel like I'm on a roller coaster. So I'm actually, every time I fly. You're not scared. It's no, but I get excited. How, how, like, do you get scared when you go on a like a roller coaster? Like, you do get excitement in your heart, but in terms, like, if that is fear, then yes, mm. but no, I right. don't get scared. See, I, I, get I hate roller coasters, so I am oh, not, okay. I do not, yeah, I get scared sometimes, yeah. depending on the pilot flying. The plane. <laughs> I, fu- right, right. It's like, if it's like There's a, per- time, what, if it's like a Persian, <laughs> you're like, oh god, yeah. <laughs> Imagine how much? can we not find an English sea or America <laughs> yeah. guy to Imagine. command this plane? Imagine no, I, if it would be Captain Reza speaking. Uh, we're yeah. heading, right. we're well, actually, you, you shouldn't be scared because <laughs> yeah. you're a captain, that's yeah. right. There we uh, go. What about you, Shia? Uh, it depends on the flight. Like Iranian domestic flights, I uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So on a puddle jumper to Qom, yeah. But if it's an international airline, oh, no, yeah, uh, you're okay. I feel safe. Yeah. <laughs> a qualified. <laughs> I feel safe. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's true, actually. Some of those, yeah. When you're in Asia and you have to go from, I don't want to. You get on one of those planes, you're like, do they even have the safety protocols here? What's the... Well, I, the funny thing about me is from when I was a kid, we were flying around, right? I mean, we, mm-hmm. you know, I fly, we visited Iran a couple of times and then, you know, emigrated. And and even when I was very, very little, we lived in London, but we'd fly to different places in Europe. I was fortunate that way, like a lot of, um, like a middle-class kid who got to go on planes. But 
and I loved it. And then as I as I've gotten older, I've become more has sauce more sensitive mm-hmm. towards the like really bad turbulence now will actually annoy me like i'll really? get i'll i'll start to wow. grab the handles and you know uh, play radiohead to calm myself or oh. something yeah yeah so imagine you're on this flight from san francisco to hawaii in february of 2018 and all of a sudden you hear a boom like mm-hmm. the airplane it's a, it's almost like the airplane has been shot or mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. there's a there's a massive the, there's a boom and the plane gets knocked in the air so there's twisting in the air and you very noticeably realize that you're you know you're crashing crashing yeah mm-hmm. wow. uh, imagine being one of those passengers and in fact because it was only 4 years ago there's actually you can go on, on online and see people took selfies of themselves on this flight mm-hmm. wow. that was right and going and and they're in some cases they're praying they're saying saying goodbye, uh, saying goodbye. i love it. absolutely oh, yeah. yeah and this flight was piloted by an iranian american named captain behnam uh, chris behnam who who has been uh, had been and uh, a um, a pilot at United Airlines for about thirty years, and his story is the remarkable story of how he landed that plane uh, with only one engine. Or I'll get into the details with him, but um, it's it's extraordinary. But what's he and and everybody lived everything. So uh, that's his hero status. But what's even more extraordinary? when you hear his story and what I want to get to with him is that he's actually confronted his own mortality a few times in his life. Mm. Um, he had a debilitating accident when he was a kid oh, wow. that left him, uh, I think, unable to walk. Oh. And he was told, the doctors told his mother that he he would never be able to walk, he would never have an active life. And he just defied. He said, "Nope, I'm that. I'm. I'm not. Uh, wow. That's not on. I'm gonna. I'm gonna be able to walk. I'm gonna be able to do all this." So, so um, he's a guy who, and he, he says in his story, we'll we'll get to it. But in those seconds, when in those minutes, when everything hit, and and he realized everyone's lives were in his hands, um, he knew that he would survive. That I mean, his in- instincts were, I, I know how to do this. Uh, it's incredible. Yeah. So very much looking forward to talking to him. Uh, Captain uh, Borzu, Christopher Borzu Behnam, coming up in um, just a few moments. Uh, hello, Captain Reza. Hello, sir. Another captain. I mean, uh, Very different not captain. The, not the same not ranking. Yeah. Captain, but. It's an honor to sh- share the same I'm still wondering title. why we call him captain to begin with. <laughs> also, also a hero, Captain Reza, for uh, being able to score good mushrooms or something. I don't even know what he... Uh, yeah. And that. hello, Groovy Shia. And the fabulous Keon. Hello. Uh, how was your weekend? It was uh, uneventful. I just, well, not uneventful. I uh, just stayed in and watched Medici's. I just devoured that show. Oh, you Medici's? and these historical I shows. I love man. historical shows like Borgia's, Medici, Rome. I devoured that mm. in the last few weeks. Have you mm. seen? I haven't one? seen Medici's. What's that on? The, Netflix or something? Yeah, it's on Netflix. All right. You know, Florence and how they came into sure, power. Sure, I know Florence. And art, his, like yeah. all the impact they Surprising, had on that eh? city. When, uh, Keon I know, likes when this Keon stuff. gets smart. This <laughs> yeah. is very, it's a breath well, of fresh air. It's always listen, a shock. I, I love art and I love history. So together, <laughs> my God. Anyway, so that was my weekend. How was your weekend? Uh, uh, it was very good. I, I 
I got a bunch done. I went and saw this uh, musical that uh, with Hushang Tozi, who mm. hopefully is we're going to have on the show in the coming days. Uh, mm. He is. It's kind of a tribute to, and he's playing Feyduna mm. Um and his kind of tragic story, obviously. Uh, do you know who Ferdinand Farrakhsad is? I just know that she's. You're uh, looking at me blankly. No, 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 no. Oh boy. No, Ferdinand Farrakhsad is not sure. Oh no, I know That's who Shantuza Tozi. No, I know Ferdinand Farrakhsad. Who's Ferdinand Farrakhsad? How do I describe him? He was just. This yeah, like a showman. Like uh, I, I just heard a lot about absolutely, him. I and seen, I think for people who grew up in Iran, mm-hmm. even if you were too young to mm-hmm. have witnessed him in person, mm-hmm. you guys all know Farhan Farzad very well. We growing up here, we mm-hmm. didn't really hear about no, him except for somebody was assassinated, something happened, right. he was killed, uh, and so learning about this this guy over the last few years, mm-hmm. you know, and and um, what a remarkable presence he was he was one of those folks who was able to connect to people through the television screen somehow and and was i guess getting on his show was the equivalent of yes uh, you know we did it with the contemporary history of iran last week it's like being on Golha. yes you yes. get everybody knows you if you're on the fairy show right? yeah of course yeah and everybody wants to be on the show so yeah. he was a Persian Jian Gomeshi. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. That's why that's why I call you Captain. No, yeah. To pay you back for your. I don't actually go to school. This is how I gain that's my right. title. This oh. is your schooling. Handering, uh, learn people. <laughs> Flattery right. gets you nowhere, Reza. Effort Haven't we learned? <laughs> Uh, anyway, so I had a pretty pretty good weekend, and and you, Captain Reza. Well, speaking of speaking of watching movies, uh, I did the opposite as a creator, because um, I'm in the middle of um, a pre-production for my upcoming film mm. to be shot in July. So I was location scouting actually. Right. Ah. I was yeah out there looking at locations okay. and stuff. Being it turns, it turns it into on a, a weekend. Yeah. Turns it into a promo yeah. for himself. No, no, no. But you know what's funny? Because I'm looking for a place like an ethnic place, uh, like a How, res- ethnic what restaurant, type of ethnic? Uh, like a shawarma place, right? Oh. But I want it to be Turkish, and I'm having a far, hard, hard time finding mm. a Turkish restaurant. So yeah. I went to the Persian Plaza. And I was hanging around There's there. some great Turkish restaurants I can introduce you to. Them. For, um, like a donor place type of thing? Yeah. So, oh, okay. That would be uh, but also, you've been working on um, the final edits for oh, yeah, a I was, series. I didn't know if we were going to talk about I it. I think we, yes, could, we could talk yeah, about actually, it. Actually, I don't know. You're right. We know that we, we I mean, people know we, we, we said we went to London. That's right. And we so shot something that. in London. Yeah. We haven't said the title of it. Yeah, so yeah, we'll yeah. hold that back. But Reza's, I mean, it's been a few months, but yeah, we're we're months. about to release this um, this series that we're very excited yeah, about. Yeah. And uh, of course, you know, Reza, he, I mean, <laughs> anytime I, con- I, I keep kind of going, is it how we doing, Reza? I'm trying to be nice. You know, I don't want to. I want to encourage him rather mm-hmm. than scream at him because yeah. it's, it's only five months yeah. late, right? Oh. And I'll be Who's like, uh, Reza, how's it? I'm, I'm working on it right now, you know? And, and then, uh, like, he'll he'll say, I'm working on it. And then the next thing I see, he's like, there's a video of him on the internet. At some, <laughs> you know. Drunk at a party. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've been working all weekend, okay? <laughs> I work during the week. I party on weekends. <laughs> but no, it's coming along great, and I'm excited. We can't, we're not going to reveal the title, but... It's good to actually build a little, a little bit of anticipation, right? I really, yeah, I can't. It's video. It's and, video. Uh, it's we're going to post it. It's a show. show. Yeah, we can say that. Travel show. And we, uh, In London. we'll release it soon. And the yeah. first episode, the first. 
the first it takes place in different cities. The yes, first right. city is London. The first yeah. city is London. So yeah. uh, well, we basically given it away. Yeah. People don't have to watch it now. Yeah. Oh, you know what it's like? You, you, you know what it's a lot. Uh, you know what it's like? Yeah. Medici's. <laughs> I don't. Know, I have no idea what that show is. But it's like maybe Keon will finally <laughs> watch her. Of course, I'm a history guy. I love history. So you know who the Medici's are. Uh, yeah. Wow. Ah, <laughs> Somebody nice wasn't one. paying attention. They had a they had a great shoe empire <laughs> in the 20th century. <laughs> they threw cats at yes, their I enemies. Yes, I know the So the uh, Da Vinci, Leonardo, uh, yes. Leonardo Da Vinci, uh, Botticelli, all these yes. artists exist because of the Medici. Yes. We would have not known about these people. Yes. Yeah, Firenze. So. What? Oh, oh Florence, yeah. Yes, sir. Why did you yell that you. out? <laughs> wow. uh, anyway, moving on. We are coming to you on rookmedia.com. It's so that you can link to all of our platforms. If you're looking for a place to catch up on all the Rook stuff, just go to our website, rookmedia.com. We are on an ongoing mission to build a new audiovisual encyclopedia of Iranian diaspora identity. We're on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Instagram, CastBox. If you'd like to see visuals with Rook, you switch over to YouTube. Uh, and if you like your descriptions and bulletins in Persian and in English, check us out on Telegram, Rook Media. You know, I realized that... Um, the, the one of the ways that people find podcasts, if you're one of the mm -hmm. people who actually subscribes or listens to our podcasts, uh, which is the majority of our audience, as opposed to just watching us on social media, um, one of the ways that you find new podcasts is you get uh, prompted, you get recommended, uh, you know, like yes. Apple, say, if you're listening to us right now on Apple Podcasts, mm -hmm. you, uh, you, you know, you, recommendations of similar podcasts, mm -hmm. that's the way you find podcasts. And the recommendations happen based on how many reviews you've gotten. And if you get a lot of reviews, a lot of action like that. So if you're listening right now, I mean, we usually do the call out for people to become a, a patron. That's right. You know, to sign up and hit our support us button. But there's something you can do that's very, very easy, which is whatever platform you're listening to us on. And certainly if you're on Apple or Spotify, you can give us a review. Hopefully mm -hmm. we'd love an, a good one. Uh, it, it's, it's right there. It's right on yeah. your device. You just go and, and give us some stars and then say, uh, great. And the more reviews we get, the, the better. Exactly. I think we have actually very good reviews so far on our so far. Except for a couple of people who just wanted to be troublemakers. Yes, and the people that... I think it was Roham, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Most of the bad reviews are done by Roham. Yes. <laughs> no, so anyway, yeah, if you go to our... Uh, if, you, if, you, if you can, on whatever platform, uh, give us a, a good review. It really helps us. Yeah. It, it helps yeah. us get the word out because you that's it, the way the algorithms work, right? Exactly. You're a exactly. captain. You would know these things. That, yeah. is, that is one thing I know, yes. And then if you're watching us or listening to us on YouTube, please comment, like, or share on on Instagram do the same because yeah that is at some like to be perfectly honest with you that is the currency yeah nowadays, so well I didn't know that about podcasts that the way it's just what activity if mm -hmm. there's so so it doesn't matter it doesn't matter that we have thousands of uh, listeners yeah. if if there isn't that engaged, kind of reviews and stuff right. then then it the algorithm doesn't kick in that's to right. be recommending it so anyway uh, we'd love you to give us a, a, a review um, and once again, our website is rookmedia.com where you can link to all of those platforms. So we're going to get to Captain Benham. I wanted to say about one thing, though, uh, that because it, it prompted, I got triggered by it on the weekend, and I thought it was so funny. I was thinking about it. Iranians and real estate. Mm -hmm. right? Love them. We, we, love, the, we no, love the real estate see, agents. Well, you guys do. I, I mean, no, let, but come on. Personally. I mean, they're, they are, uh, yes, yes. you know. Bread and butter of this country. Bread and butter of, of certainly in, <laughs> I don't know if this is the case 
uh, in other parts of the diaspora. Oh, most definitely. Is it? I, I don't Are know we fucking real estate okay. agents everywhere? Or just, <laughs> I thought it was just, maybe the greater Toronto area. Well, I think I don't, a lot of Iranians think the best way to grow your money is through property, which is true in many right, cases. Right. So to them, like any business involving property is... Right. And also it's gold. not a... It's, it's a... It's a tough job to be great at I guess but yeah. but it's not a hard you go to a new country it's something you can do and sell to others in the community yeah. and so I, yeah so there's all these risks but now here's the thing have you know <laughs> have you noticed that all of these real I mean there's got to be I don't know, 50,000 real oh, estate agents, Persian real estate agents in, in Toronto, I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. You know, have you noticed that they're all number one in Canada? <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> award winning and number one. I, 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 I do not understand. <laughs> I do not understand how all of these real estate agents, Baba, I am number one. So I saw <laughs> a close buddy of mine uh, at this uh, at an event on the weekend who who's a real estate agent in Toronto. By the way, that narrows it down to about three hundred people. So I, like, I'm not I'm not throwing him, yeah. him under the bus. But um, and I said, "How's it going?" And he said, uh, "We, you know, my firm just got we are number one in Canada." And I and I I just wanted to say like. No, you're not. <laughs> like for sure, you're not. How is it that you're? How the? How are all of these real estate agents number one? I mean, it's such a weird like Persian. Uh, sorry, but I don't see this happening in other, you know, uh, communities. Like yeah, it's like no. a, uh, you know, I mean, uh, maybe you're in the top 100 in yeah. Willowdale, like yeah. in, in Toronto, even. Yeah, like yeah. I mean, I I don't understand. I mean, it, it doesn't take much to put a number one sign on your photo and. Post it online. Who's gonna? Who's gonna? Who are you defaming? Who's gonna come after <laughs> right. you for real? Right. Like, it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't always say where you're number one or That's what. That's right. Number, like number, number, or you know, you're like it's in, in my street on the street. Yeah. <laughs> Should there not be a regulation saying you have to state exactly, you know, where you're number uh, one? Of course. Like, like number one on this street that think. I sold two houses on. I don't know. Like there's gotta one be. One would think there yeah. would be checks and balances. But, there but, but can you imagine? I mean, it is kind of. I'm sorry. Like I don't want to always. Uh, you know, but it is. This is a really a Persian predilection. Yeah. Like it's a really interesting thing. That I mean, I don't necessarily see it. You know, it's it's like not like Shia. Oh, you're in a band, uh, Dang Show. Yes, we are number one. You know, like <laughs> we scored number one, and, and it's like. Where? But it, it is kind of like that. Yeah. It's definitely like that in the real yeah. estate thing. Yeah. I just I need real estate agents to tell me how you can all be in the top ten. It doesn't make sense. <laughs> well, right? you know what's funny? The fact that I never thought about it. Like it never occurred to me that 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 doesn't make any sense you always hear it and you brush it off or yeah, you're right. like oh well good for you man I'm sure you're fantastic and uh, more power to you right. but now that right. you mention it I'm like actually I never let you sat down I don't like, think there where? I don't think there's a Persian real estate agent in this country <laughs> that is the number one yeah. or that isn't in the top ten or maybe the ones who just got their license like <laughs> I don't know it's oh, amazing man. Oh, yeah. Just, yeah. So that was your what do you think that? Why do you think that 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 is the case, Shy? You <laughs> usually have a, a sort of philosophical. <laughs> yeah, you have some reason. You. Actually, speaking of realtor and uh, you know, Jidal, the good rapper. Yes, yeah, the great rapper. I, I I had a jam session with him yesterday. And nice. I told him that. So, what are you doing for your life? And he said, "I'm realtor, and I'm one of the best realtors." <laughs> <in the city." laughs> 
man. You can't make this What stuff number up. is he? he Ask just, him what he, number he is. Yeah. <laughs> he, 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 he just right? started. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just started. Yeah, but since he's a good uh, rapper, I can't believe that he's a good realtor. I just yeah. want to know how the math works. We are number how one. can everyone be number one? <laughs> well, maybe they are number one at some point. Like 1975, no. the guy was number <laughs> one. Still or, like riding that. I don't know. On a specific street, you're number one. Or in an area. For sure, it's got to be something like that. Yeah, but they don't clarify. They no, just say there's no, 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 no. I think it's like the going to a concert an hour and a half late. Like I think mm-hmm. it's just like baked into the community. Like it's something accepted. We all just uh, if you're a real estate agent, just start saying you're number one. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know. I if mean, you believe it, they will too. <laughs> Speaking about, I want to say something that has nothing to do with this, but okay. uh, uh, it's a surprise. A, surprise. It, no, it, it, yeah. it is interesting. Though. Is it about Speaking a movie of, you're making? No, no, no. <laughs> it's about Captain Behnam actually. Okay. Uh, funny enough, you ca- since we started Rock, you called me Captain, not because you knew anything about my background, because like we were running these things, and it was a two-man show at first, and then yeah. sl- like slowly, yeah. gradually, like other people joined the team, and now we're, we are where we are, which we're very proud. But uh, in 2000 and I think 17 or 18, it was we hadn't met yet. Uh, I actually enrolled at a um, flying school. Really? Yeah. 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 I wanted to be. A, I want to get my private pilot license. Thank God you didn't and, go through uh, with it. <laughs> well, actually, <laughs> imagine if Reza was flying oh that God. United oh United Airlines. No fucking way. <laughs> no, it wasn't. Uh, sorry, everybody, but we're going down. <laughs> get out your selfies and say goodbye. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> sir, are you not the pilot, the yeah. captain? Yeah, yeah, I gotta go. I, I know we got one engine. I'll manage. Just he'll parachute with me. He'll bro. parachute himself out there. This Captain Benham, like he's like he cool as a cucumber. Can you imagine, like, Reza? No. I'd be like, uh, ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. My sincere apologies. I did not think this entirely through. I've sold all the parachutes for profit. Every first, parachute first of all, is first of all, all the all the passengers are like, that's our captain's voice. <laughs> <laughs> I hope Sign. everybody will uh, enjoy the fa- the last minute of your lives. <laughs> no idea what oh I'm doing. Oh my god! But yeah, for real though, I did. Okay. Uh, but I had some difficulties, financial problems. Oh. I ran into. Oh, that was the issue. <laughs> that was the, it. Cost money. It cost me like fifteen thousand oh. dollars. So oh. I had to. Like yeah, but, but you, I still but have you were, the registration. You're an aspiring, well, aspiring pilot. I, I, I'm like I'm. I still still on my plan. Um, yeah. Uh, what I'm made gonna you? Do it. I just don't have time. What gave you the interest to want to fly? I, a plane? Oh, I love flying. I don't have a fear of height at all. Like oh, I've done okay. um, skydiving a bunch of mm. times. Oh. I, as I said, like I actually get excited. Oh, you're gonna enjoy this interview. Oh, I can't wait. He's, I really he's, he's can't waiting, wait. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, let's, let's get, get to, to it. it. Let's get to our future guest, uh, Captain Reza. <laughs> Can't believe I'm bringing I Captain Behnam on yeah, and Captain yeah. Reza. Listen, I'm going to personally apologize to Captain Behnam uh, after the interview. <laughs> Captain Reza, Groovy Shia, the fabulous Keon. We'll see you all in a little bit on the other side. Let's get to our feature guest. My feature guest today is an Iranian American who came to international attention in 2018 for those heroic actions in saving 381 lives on a United Airlines flight from San Francisco to Hawaii. Captain Christopher Borzubehnam is a pilot, an aviation expert, a motivational speaker, and an Iranian human rights advocate. Captain Behnam was born in Iran. He was only nine years old, he says, when his father took him for the first time to Mehrabad Airport 
airport and he saw an airplane, a Pan Am Boeing 747, and from that very moment was seized with a burning desire to become a pilot. Well, he has now been working with United Airlines for 34 years. He has logged over 30,000 hours of flight time and has over 15 million miles flown under his belt. But the more we learn about his story, the more we learn that he's not just a celebrated pilot behind that heroic flight, but a man who's had a remarkable life of defying the odds and pursuing his dreams only to spread his wisdom to the masses these days. He is the recipient of the prestigious the Superior Airmanship Award for his actions in saving the UA Flight 1175 on February 13th, 2018, and right now. Captain Christopher Borzu Bernam joins me from the Bay Area in California today. Hello, sir. Hello, Jean Jones. Thank you so much for having me on your program. It's great to it's great to have you on the program. I can see you because we've got the video up and and you've got your big smile. You know, I have to say, doing the research on you is it is doing the research on a man who's constantly smiling. You're always so cheery. Is is that a conscious decision? Do you work on that? Do you think about being uh, a happy guy? Well, I have created a habit many many years ago that uh, happiness is everything in life. So jokingly. One of my seminars, somebody asked me, and and my response was to the question, which was, do you ever get upset? Do you ever are down? I said, I'm sorry I gave you that impression. I tried it once. I didn't like it, so I don't do it anymore. Right, you so. tried depression once and you didn't like it, but but if you're but you know on a day uh, when you're having, I mean, you know, just one of those days where everything's going wrong. Do, is it self-talk? How do you stay so cheery? It is self-talk. I have internalized certain things, you know, like the marketeers, the advertising companies, they figure out the buttons to push on your body to make you buy their products. I have learned how to and what buttons to push so I can really change from one bad moment to a better moment. So mm. that's that's what I do on a consistent basis, literally every day in my life. So if you can learn how to market that, you <laughs> you you I mean I guess you do in your motiv- motivational speaking. Well, um, a lot of people like that and I tell uh, folks in my speeches that the uh, least used muscles in the body are the facial muscles. There are 64 of them, and they're the least used <laughs> muscles. So mm-hmm. might as well start exercising them by smile, and it does a chemical reaction. Your body has a chemical reaction to that. And then, you know, more cheerful you are, more happy you are, the healthier you are. And, you know, I'm 62 years old. Uh, people tell me I still look like 45, so... It works for me anyway. You look amazing. You also look like you could beat people up because you're big and strong. You look like the rock, you know, so I, uh, uh, I, you, the smile kind of offsets the <laughs> the muscular uh, <laughs> figure that you that you cut. Um, listen, I, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't start with uh, uh, the major news of, of your life in the last few years. It was four years ago that your, your name popped up on headlines around the world for these uh, actions that you took to save United Flight uh, 1175. 
25 en route to Honolulu from the Bay Area. This this is, of course, an event that would change your life. You had been a professional pilot with United for many, many years, but when you set out on that morning of February 13th, 2018, did you have any reason to believe that this was going to be a dramatic day? No, not at all. It was another just a f- beautiful, fun uh, flight. I, I always make my flight a fun one. I always make it so, you know, it's enjoyable. You know, the way I come across with the flight attendants to the pilots, I set the tone that let's go have fun for the next two days or four days. Mm-hmm. You know, this is our job. But, you know, because I'm so grateful and happy to do it, I always go with, to work with that attitude. No, we had absolutely no indication whatsoever that anything could go wrong. As a matter of fact, um, the first five hours, everything was just perfect. Like, you know, I've been going to Honolulu for 35 years and, you know, never ever had an incident like that. However, I always in my mind simulate the worst case scenario because, you know, when you're going at 550 knots, almost a thousand kilometers, per hour, things happen pretty fast. You're literally sitting on top of a cruise missile. Right. And the autopilot is controlling it. But when things get out of control and you become the autopilot, you really have to be very gentle with your hand and feet, you know, in, in order to control the aircraft. So you can over you don't want to overstress the airplane at that speed. It could be catastrophic, and it has happened in the past. Okay, so so the more I learn about your life, the more I realize that it was more than just your experience as a pilot that made you the right person to be in the cockpit that day. You, you have had a, a lifetime of dealing with and conquering adversity, and I want to get into the details of your life story, also the, the life lessons and mantras you've embraced as a, as a motivational speaker based on what you've been through, but... To get it out of the way, if you will, for those who don't know the story, let's just go get through some of the, the details of that, that harrowing flight on February 13th, 2018. So as you say, it was hours into the flight on a, on a clear day that you and uh, uh, the, uh, you, you had no reason to believe anything was, was going wrong. And then you and everyone on this plane, including uh, obviously all the passengers, hear a massive boom and you feel a massive boom. What, what did you think was happening? Well, um, the first 35 seconds of the incident was very, very confusing because the engine instruments on the newer jets are all glass cockpit, you know, like your iPad. The information that gets sent from the flight controls, fuel system, the engines, the landing gear is all in front of you in a digital format and a picture. So when the explosion happened there was a tremendous deceleration on the aircraft because the right engine went out and we didn't know that initially because what happened was the aircraft as we were going forward when one engine dies like let's say the right side the airplane turns into the dead engine that's what we call it it turns into the dead engine right it kind of goes on its side in the air right, right. so basically um on that model of the 777, we have three different models. Uh, the thrust on that engine is 90,000 horsepower on each side. So you got 180,000. On the 777-300, there are 115,000. 
just to give an audience um, or as a listener an idea, the nacelle around the engine is so big that you can put a Southwest 737 Boeing 737 fuselage through it. So that's how massive that engine is. And once one is out of the equation or dies, the other engine going at full thrust rolls the aircraft. So there was a huge bang followed by tremendous deceleration to a point that we almost hit our head on the glare shield. I mean, it's just like somebody slamming on the brakes, I mean, which was really shocking because you just don't feel that. I mean, even people who just fly for you know business, they know when the airplane rolls down the runway, at some point, the captain's going to bring the nose up and get airborne. If that airplane stays on the longer uh, runway longer, they're like, what's going on? Even they do, don't understand, but they know that there's something is going on. Right. So in this case, when the explosion happened, the airplane rolled to a 45 degrees of bank at 36,000 feet, Mach 3, which is 1.7 below the speed of sound. And my muscle memory tells me that, you know, react right now. You, you just can't let her keep rolling like that because we're going to go upside down. And these aircrafts are not like fighter jets. They're not designed to take that type of load, especially in a fully loaded with 381 souls. So I immediately went into my, what are we taught, standard operating procedure and turn basically the left aileron to the good engine and the left rudder and try to bring the airplane back. But because I had so much thrust, she keep wanting to turn right. Now, I was able to stop the roll, but she was not coming back. And, and can, I, can I just cut you off there to, to ask you, so we get so used to you know autopilot and believing that planes are basically flying themselves these days, et cetera. You are suddenly, if I understand what happened that day, um, basically, none of the auto controls are working. You can't trust the, the what's happening in front of you on the dials on the panels or whatever, you, as you've just described it. You are manually trying to grapple with bringing this plane back into some sense of calm, right? Yes. Uh, the autopilot works in a straight and level flight for, you know, gentle turns, climb, descend, climbing turns, descending turns. But when there's that much force um, applied to the servos, the autopilot just kicks off because it can't, basically cannot uh, fly the airplane. And in this case, it was so severe that we could not re-engage the autopilot. Even the checklist calls for disconnecting the autopilot. So at that time, I didn't have the autopilot. I counterbalanced the turning to the right by moving the controls to the left and she wasn't coming back, kind of hesitating at 45 degrees of bank. So I asked Paul, the co-pilot, push the nose over. We broke the angle of attack. This is a terminology because the airplane, if the angle of the attack is too high, it could literally stall. We call it the accelerated stall. So we pushed the nose over and she came back and started going the other way. So I had to play with the controls until I got what we call it the blue side up, you know, horizon in front of me. Now just pitch the nose down because the airspeed was decaying and that airplane cannot maintain altitude if you lose airspeed because it could stall. And so initially, immediately, I should say that I started to lower the nose and 
descent and vacate 36,000 feet because on one engine, you can maintain lower altitude, but not your cruise level, which was 36,000 feet. As we went through the checklist, the book says with one engine at that weight, at that temperature, you can maintain 23,000 feet and um, 240 knots that make that airplane fly on one engine. So, okay, hang on a second. Let me let me catch up with you here because, first of all, you talk about that first 30 seconds when you have no idea what's happening. Um, and, uh, I mean, I've got to think, I, I know because you, you've described this in, in a couple of interviews you've done as you'd never really encountered anything like this before. I mean, uh, especially on a calm day uh, over, over water, you – you uh, prepare for the worst, but you really didn't know what was happening. Do you, do you have a sense of how, of where you found it in yourself to stay calm and try and find a solution when um, this kind of mayhem was happening uh, all of a sudden? Well, uh, like you said, the first 30 seconds, we had no idea what's going on. And the engine sends the information um, it's shown visually to us on ICAST, the instruments that we have. Where this information comes from is from EEC, Electronic Engine Control. The confusing part was this, when the cowling came off and ripped off the airplane, those computers got taken out. So the last image that the engine was working perfectly fine was still the image I had. So my brain was telling me, my eyes were telling me, you have two good engines, but my body was telling me that something is seriously wrong. Right. As a matter of fact, one of the pilots, a jump seater in the back uh, sitting behind me said, maybe we had a mid-air collision, but that's not even makes, that doesn't make sense because we have TCAS, a traffic collision avoidance system that would show intruders at your altitude up or down you will see them in the air. So there was nothing that hit. So I'm trying to process all this information. I want to make a right decision, but I don't know what that is. But at the same time, I knew that I have to keep the airplane flying because if we left the flight envelope and we got out of it, there probably would be no chance to get that thing back. What does that mean? Remember, we're not, I'm not, and I think a lot of the audience are not aviation experts. What does, what does leaving the flight envelope mean? I'll give you a very simple example. Everything I do in life, a motivational speaking or about aviation, I make it so simple that a, a nine-year-old can understand. If you're going down the highway and you put the window down and you put your hand out at five miles an hour, nothing's going to happen. At 50, 60 miles an hour, your, your hand begins to fly. Right. The wing of an airplane is like that. So at a certain speed, that wing is flyable. And once it's flyable, the thrust pulls us off the ground. We climb to altitude, then we bring the thrust back, then we state or maintain a constant Mach number. In this case, after this 30 seconds of hesitation, I should say, the unknown, the confusion was like, I have something major and serious going on here, but I don't know what it is. And so I literally turned and ask Paul, what is going on? I can't not control this airplane. We thought maybe a part of the wing came off or part of the stabilizer came off because she's not behaving normal. 
And he says, everything seemed normal. Both engines are normal. And Ed from the back said that, hey, maybe we had a major collision. I said, that doesn't make sense. And right within that 35 seconds, I realized that, you know, I am responsible for all these people's lives. Yeah. I must, not I hope, not I wish, I must land safely. And because of the initial shock and the starter factor, literally, you know, everything became slow motion to me. Hmm. You know, I could hear Paul's mouth going, you know, opening, I mean, them talking and I see the mouth and, you know, chaos in the cockpit, but I'm like focused on the instruments. I said, I cannot let this get out of control. That envelope I was telling you about, the reason the airplanes, you know, they spin out of the air, you know, the G-forces, everything, the shock and airplane not being flyable. If you get to that condition, especially on a transport category jet, it's very hard to recover. And um, so I just could not let it go to that um become severe enough that would be uncontrollable. So, so, so Captain Benham, I, I know you let the air traffic control in Honolulu know that you're having problems, uh, to say the least. They say, how much fuel do you have and how many passengers, which was 381? Why did they ask that? Well, uh, they have their own SOP. When there's an aircraft in distress, and you hear the call Mayday, 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 which is an international distress signal. Um, basically, everybody's just, you, you capture everybody's attention worldwide, even, you know, through the network, the ATC, hospitals being notified, FAA's been notified, FBI's been notified, because they don't know what's going on. They, all they know is there is a, aircraft with a distress signal that is going to meet the earth at some point and how and what they have to do in order to prepare themselves mostly you know the local hospitals get the firemen i mean the whole thing is just pretty impressive mm. everybody gets notified that they can be at the airport just in case the landing gear fails or we crash sioux city iowa was a perfect example with al haynes but they lost control of the DC-10, and three of them managed to stabilize it. But once they hit the runway, she cartwheeled and broke up. And, you know, 185 people survived. Unfortunately, a lot of people died. So, But when they're saying how much fuel do you have, I'm assuming they're trying to calculate whether, you know, how, how long you're going to be able to keep things going up there. Uh, especially yeah, if you're going right. to an airport, the weather is perfect, everything's good. You know, FAR, Federal Aviation Regulation, said you got to land there with 45 minutes extra fuel. And we were just, we just had just a slightly over an hour because, you know, we, we didn't anticipate something like this is going to happen. And if they know or think you're not going to make it, they might vector you to a different airport. Mm. Okay. Um, maybe to Maui or uh, maybe Kona, but from where we were, and I knew exact position that I was in and my comfort level for Honolulu because I've been going there for 35 years, that was the best scenario for us. Plus, they want to know how much fuel you have on board because if an airplane crashes with full tank of fuel, 
I mean, it could be really bad. Oh, I mean, it just right, like, right. you know, explosion is like, you know, if the car explodes with five gallons of gas is one thing, but, you know, if a, a tanker explodes, you know, they're carrying gas is, is a totally different story. It could really yeah. uh, destroy things. And especially if, and it has happened that unfortunately airplanes have crashed into populated area. So they want to know that. And they also want to give you the priority because once you declare emergency, like mayday, 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 we say that three times, they clear the airspace you are number one, you have priority as a pilot in command, you can make any decisions you want. Mm. And they are there to support you and help you and guide the aircraft, you know, navigate to the airport as the shortest distance possible to the closest airport, which in our case was Honolulu still. So I have to say at this point that, you know, in, in reading about this and researching you and this event, it's one thing to hear you tell the story it's another thing to actually watch because this was only three or four years ago, right? So, so people have their smartphones and people made videos on the flight uh, in the passengers. That is, um, some of them basically praying or saying goodbye or telling their family they love them uh, because they are obviously terrified. And and you know, as someone who has <laughs> flown a lot in my life, I've had the good fortune because well, we were a kid, we moved around a lot, and then uh, for work and other reasons, I've had to, the chance to fly a lot. I still have never gotten used to turbulence. It still freaks me out. Um, and I, I just wonder, even when you've done the 30,000 hours and the, the, the 15 million miles and all of your credentials in the 35 years, are you scared in that moment? Was this enough to actually scare you? Or did you somehow feel like you were going to be able to pull this off? No, I was not scared at all. I didn't have time to be scared. I'll get very concerned when, you know, when we did the May Day. And uh, I immediately divided the responsibility in the cockpit. I delegated the ATC communication to Ed, as well as communicating with the flight attendants, because I really had my hands full. We really didn't have time to be scared. If, if any delay, extra delays, that airplane would have rolled, and it would have got out of the normal flying condition and would have been so difficult for us to um, deal with it. One thing I'd like to add here that I am a person that keeps my promises. I am a promise keeper. You see, Gian, when you go buy an airline ticket, you're not buying a product. You're only buying a promise that we take you from point A to point B safely. Nothing's tangible. It's not a clothes you buy. It's not a car you buy to take home. You buy a promise. And I take that extremely seriously. I take that extremely seriously. And that's why I said, I cannot fail these people. Hmm. I cannot betray their trust they put in me day after day after day. Yes, it's fine to fly fancy jets, go around the world, you know, have pictures and, you know, meet different people from the cultures. But the bottom line is, whether it's a five minute flight or whether it's a 15 hour flight to Australia or Hong Kong, I take that extremely seriously. And one thing that really, um, impacted me and my decision is that when ATC asked Ed how many souls on board and how much fuel so they could prepare themselves, he said 381 souls. Now that airplane only carries 364 people. 
under age of two are souls on board, but their weight is so little oh. that doesn't count. You, you find out there's a bunch of kids on the flight. I knew immediately that there are children that have no clue what's going on. And all their lives is in our hands, me and my team. And that was almost like a wake-up call. You know, it's just 381 people in an airport or it's a small town. You're carrying a small town from point A to point B. And again, as I said, I, said, I couldn't betray their trust. And also I had some unfinished business that, you know, with my dad, he had mm -hmm. become very sick with cancer. He was in a hospital and uh, I made one decision. I think the quality of our lives is based on the quality of the decisions we make on a daily basis. And that one single decision was, today is not the day we're gonna die. Mm. I have some unfinished business. And because of that, that became a driving force. And, you know, it's just like, I became a different person. I literally became a different person. I became calm and collected. I tapped into my martial art expertise of balance, sailing, balancing rocks. Hmm. So you asked the question earlier, what helped me? I think all of those things helped me. And the fact that I have cheated death three times prior to that, you know, it, it, uh, it helped me. Let, let to, me get, let me get to that. I, I, I've got so much yeah. I want to ask you, but just in terms of, and if you can do this in a, in a layman kind of way, uh, again, for those of us who aren't aviation experts, how do you basically fly the plane and land it. I mean, spoiler alert: you you landed it. We know that because you're here, and and um and we call you the hero. But with one engine, how do you how do you do you basically glide it home? I mean, how do you, in a simple way, put this to to tell us how you did this? Good question. Yeah, uh, any airplanes from a Cessna 152 to a Boeing 747, you don't need engines to fly the airplane. If you're at an altitude engines are shut down, the airplane is like a glider. Bigger, sure, but it still can glide. So if you put me over the US at 36,000 feet and shut both engines down, just like the space shuttle, I can find an airport and glide and go land there. Because aerodynamically, in order to fly an airplane, you lower the nose, you have to have air speeds. Remember we talked at a certain speed, the wing becomes flyable. Below that speed, the wing is not flyable. And to answer your question again, yes, you lower the nose, bring the airplane, you know, nose down a few degrees, and the airplane begins to vacate or leave the high altitude, 36,000 feet, and you glide to the airport. So in this case, it was really important because in order for me to descend on one engine with the right wing being aerodynamically so compromised because the engine fell apart and the cowling came off, I had too much drag. Normally, nobody calculates an airplane descending with full thrust. Full thrust means you're burning more gas. If you're supposed to land with hour worth of gas, and now you're coming down the step, you know, from 36,000 to, to the sea level with the full thrust, you're gonna burn a lot more gas. So that became by itself another problem that we could have run out of fuel if we were further out. Plus, on top of all of this, the right wing 
was unflyable. So I had to keep the speed up. But if I kept the speed up too high, she was shaking so bad that we literally thought the wings, the parts going to come off the airplane. If the speed was too slow, she would fall out of the sky. So I had to literally create a new envelope. And that was between 245 to 100, 250 knots and keep it there. And that gave me about 1,000 to 1,200 feet per minute descent. Now, as you know, 200 miles out, I had to calculate in my head altitude, airspeed, distance to the runway and keep it what we call a CDAP, a constant descent angle for that to come. We had only one shot at making Honolulu Airport uh, because I was coming down with full thrust. And that's when it, a major airline pilot, when he hears that, he's like, man, that's bad. I mean, you have full thrust to descent. Usually, you have full thrust to take off and climb. Mm. And you cut the power back and you just glide back towards the runway. Can you just explain uh, very simply, what was it that happened? Did you hit a, I don't know, an air pocket? Or did the did the plane itself just malfunction and, and one of the engines? Like, what was the boom? What was that? What have we found in, in retrospect? The quick answer is that a fan blade failed. You know, the blade that's inside, when you look at the engine and aircraft, you know, those things that look like a propeller, they call them fan blade on the jet. One of them failed. And we didn't know this at the time. And nobody was going to speculate on it. As you know, the NTSB and FAA are very thorough with their uh, investigation. You know, they talked to United Maintenance, United Personnel, talked to Pratt Whitney who makes the engine, which by the way, I love Pratt Whitney. I mean, I've been flying their airplanes, you know, even the turbine ones. But how, op how often does that happen, that the blade malfunctions? That was the first time in the life of the 777 that ever happened. Wow. I mean, something that you just basically say, something like this does never, ever happen. It was right. the first time in the history of uh, Boeing 777 that had a catastrophic failure. We have had engine in-flight engine shutdown, and believe me, I mean, it's not a big deal. You know, we practice this in a simulator, even the severe engine damage. We shut it down, contain it, okay? And then, you know, just make a box pattern, go back and land. And But when it happened, what it did, and the cowling actually separated, you know, there are a bunch of pictures I can forward to you. When it came apart, they call it the uncontained because the propellers or the fan blades even the two were missing, it kept turning. And it literally felt like on left side, I'm pulling 90,000 pounds of thrust. And on the right side, I have a four-store building that I'm pulling through the air at 550 knots, which is almost 1,000 kilometers per hour. When you finally landed in Honolulu, um, there's this moment after you've landed and everybody's realized that you've, you've made it. Uh, that you come out of the cockpit and you greet the passengers as they're getting off. Um, what was that like? Well, throughout my career, I have had a lot of, I call them white knuckle flyers. They come to the cockpit, men or women, mostly, well, the men are pretty tough, right? The <laughs> captain, I just don't, I hate flying. You know, I get scared, but, but the women are in tears. And I stop everything I'm doing. I turn around, look at them in the eyes and say, this is who I am. This is my passion. I live for this. I want to go home to my kids, to my wife. And 
you can trust me. I'm going to get you there safely. And, you know, I literally don't blow them off. I, I literally take time and talk to them, ask them about what makes them, you know, fearful. And I tell them a little bit about um, the, uh, you know, characteristic of flight. And sometimes I even get out of my seat and let them on my seat. I put the captain hat on their head, take mm -hmm. a picture, put their hands on the control, hand on the throttle. I said, this is how I control this. And I'm really good at it. You know, today you picked the best flight because we are, <laughs> not me, but all of us, collectively in the cockpit have over 100 years of flying. So you're in good hands. Um, the reason I went and sat, uh, stood by the door, it was because I told myself that these poor people have been through a horrific experience. I mean, as you pointed out, a few of them, uh, grab their phones and they're doing a selfie. They're saying goodbyes yeah. to their loved ones for 40 minutes. And even at my award ceremony, I thank the passengers for their courage. You know, it's awful. I mean, some of us, we think, you know, we're pretty hot shot, you know, we, we're cool and, you know, we've done this or we've done that. We, um, uh, we have given to society, we have given to our parents, we have given to our family. But now we're sitting back there and our life is in this guy's hand and they have no clue what's going on. I have had heads of states. I have had two or three ex-presidents in the back of my airplane, secretary of states, movie stars, you know, on a regular basis, singers that they have changed the world with their, you know, actions and now their lives in my hands. So I take that extremely seriously. So I thought it would be a really good thing to go stand by the door and thank each one, shake hands with every single one of them and say, you know, thank you for your courage. I'm glad we're here and we all made it. And there was a lot of emotions. There was a lot of emotion. And, uh, you know, from a guy that tries to be tough, you know, <laughs> to a lady that just barely could walk down the aisle and people had to help her literally get off the airplane because she just, just they had lost it. You know, you just, just you know, seeing, thinking your life is over and you're never going to see your loved ones again. And as I said, I make promises and I don't make my, break my promises. And, uh, Captain Medham, did you have any idea at that moment after you landed in Honolulu that this would become this huge international story that we'd be talking about this four years later? Um, no, I didn't. We were in a shock. I mean, it really took three or four days because I had a lot of unanswered questions. I, a lot of stuff was going through my head as a professional pilot. What if, what if? We didn't know the magnitude of this problem until we got off the airplane and walked on the ramp and looked at that engine. And it, it, it was shocking. I mean, news media was there. All the United personnel in Hawaii were there. The firemen were there. And... They're just looking at that airplane and the engine in awe. Gian, to be honest with you, if the engine had fallen off the wing, it would be no big deal. I would have preferred for that. I wish I had the ejection button to push and get that engine off. But because once it's separated and opened up like this, you're going through the air at, you know, 1,000 kilometers, it created so much drag that 
took every ounce of our energy and focus to stabilize the flight and fly it first. Wow. How traumatized were you? Uh, you know, when this happened, I mean, just how, how soon afterwards were you willing to get back in a cockpit? Oh, the next day. <laughs> Did you really? The next literally day? Literally the next day. Really? I literally was ready to go back the next day. You got to understand, uh, I live, breathe, sleep, talk, eat, drink aviation. Hmm. I mean, I haven't done anything else in life that, you know, except this ever since. In my head, started at nine years old. I begged my mom. She uh, got me in a glider for 10 toman, the Iranian money, the old days at uh, Tehran Pars, at, at the Air Force Academy in Tehran Pars. They had gliders. So at the age of 11, I had my first experience of being airborne. Let me just set this up because I love the story. And it's funny because we often hear things like, oh, you know, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be a pilot. But in your case, I really believe it because your passion is so palpable. You, This really is your, your love. And it's a great fortune for you, I would say, that you identified your passion as young as you did. You were born in the north of Iran, in Mazandaran, and your family moved to Tehran when you were about three years old. And so the story is that you go to Mehrabad Airport with your dad, and, and what, you see, you see a flight and you go, that's, that's what I want to do? Is it as simple as that? In my case, it was, I was three days old when we moved to Tehran, not three years. Oh, three days you know, old. Just oh. like, oh, okay. And actually, I was early, right? So my mom was not planning for me to be <laughs> born in Amul. So her parents, you know, and, um, you know, the last name is Roshan. It was a very nice and good and respectable name. So I kind of popped out early. So three days later, they took me to Tehran. And yes, it was that simple. I mean, um, due to circumstances, we'll, we'll talk about this later. Um, my dad was not with us all the time. He was uh, absentee dad because of political issues. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, like, I don't know, with Tehran, I don't think they have weekends. Or maybe it's Thursday or Friday versus uh, Saturday and Sunday. But, you know, he took us to Mirabad Airport and I saw a Pan Am 747 take off. And that was it. And I said, that is what I want to do. Not only be a pilot. I want to fly and be a captain on the 747. And everybody kind of laughed at me, laughed, uh, looked at me and laughed and said, yeah, 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 yeah. And you know how the Persian families are and you go home and you're so excited. You tell everybody that oh, I'm going to be a 747 pilot, a captain. And they're like, dude, those are like gods. I mean, can you even imagine? I mean, you little, you know, little, you know, guy, boy from Iran, you know, and how are you even going to get there? I, said, I don't know. But you know one thing that is really interesting? By the time I was 13 years old, I wrote 102 items on my goal list. And I'm proud to say almost 85 of them I checked off. Wait a second. You had, Magic you, happens. You had a goal list? <laughs> Who has a goal, a goal list? <laughs> All right. So you're, you, you made a list of things that you wanted to do in your life. With uh, doing my life, whether, you know, Places to visit, people to meet, books to read, um, accomplishment, airplanes, and toys to buy, all of that. 
And I am really, really, I mean, if people are close to me, if my mom was sitting here like, oh, yeah, 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 you did it. You know, I have this including thing. bringing every single family member to the U.S. and get them green card, bought houses for them, got them settled. Thank God for this job and the income. You know, I was able to fulfill so many of my goals. So yes, I made that decision. I want to be a pilot. A lot of pilots, uh, a lot of family members kind of joked, you know, laughed at me and said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, we'll see." But I never listened to the committee of them hmm. you know I, I just don't but it's you know little, when, it's i a, always say that in my motivational seminars when an idea is born in your head but in the deepest darkest part of your head you have an idea and you can see it with your mind's eye you know it's possible to do it hmm. it's just you don't know how the why is stronger than the how but when it goes from your head to your heart you begin to believe it but it's still not going to happen. When it goes from your heart to your belly, it becomes a passion, a burning desire. And you're like, I don't care what it takes. I'm going to do it. And that's exactly, no matter what life threw at me, I just got better. You know, just like life throws you curveballs, right? I just got better at batting. You have a compelling story because you're not just the kid who goes, I want to become a pilot. You're also an adventure seeker who proves over and over again that you're fearless and you have this remarkable resilience. Um, you know, it turns out that the flight, the United flight in 2018 uh, was not the only time you had your life flash before your eyes. You said a few minutes ago, it, it's happened three times in your life. The first time, if I have this correct, you're around 11 years old and you almost end up killing yourself in a river behind your house in Iran by doing this kind of commando move to save your drowning cousin. It, it, it suggests that you somehow always had the instincts to want to literally jump in to, to save someone. Would that be correct? Yes. A lot of people have given me the label of hero. I don't think of myself as a hero. I think of myself as a servant. To me, secret in life or winning in life is giving. And I've always been a giver. And I've always got other people in trouble, like my cousin. So we were in this area in Iran, um, just north of Tehran, between Tehran and Amol. You know, there was a place called Takor. And there was a river, a raging river going down in the valley. And we were bored. So I thought, how cool would it be you know, to go across the river to the other side and climb the mountain? We had a lot of mountains on this side, but no, we had to go the other way. So I came up with the idea, I get a rope. <laughs> connect it to a rock or, and then throw it on the other side. Uh, actually, I went up the stream, put the rope around my waist. I jumped in the water, swam to the other side, came and made this type of a, you know, rope across the, the, the river. And I told the guys, hey, just hold on to the river like the commandos and come. And most of my friends and cousins made it, except one cousin that he got scared and the water was too rough and he... Uh, he, he just, his hand slid and he, he, the water took him. And without even thinking, I ran alongside the river, jumped in the water because I was a really good swimmer. And I grabbed him and the water took us both. And, you know, as we going down, there were a couple of branches of trees. I held on to it. I, you know, held on with one. I was always a very strong guy, you know, because of martial arts and everything else I did. I helped him, he got on the rock, okay? 
And then I couldn't, I was exhausted. I couldn't get on and my hands gave out and the water took me. And I just, all I knew was that this is bad. So I protected my head and I got banged against the rocks like a little rag doll. And eventually the water kind of spread out and got calmer. I dragged myself to the shore and everybody ran alongside, you know, about a mile down thinking that I was actually dead and, you know, what news they're going to wow. tell my parents where they found me. And I'm like, okay, yeah, that was uh, one. And, but more important than that was the second one. I used to race dirt bikes back yes. in Iran at age of 16. I had yes. a very bad accident and I hit the helmet uh, against, I mean, it was a really bad accident and I literally got paralyzed from neck down. Yes. The doctors told my mom, I would never, ever walk again. I just didn't believe it. Not only I walked, I start running. I love running. And not only I ran, I became a third degree black belt in martial arts. What, what do you mean? What do you mean was, you didn't believe it? Like what? So when a dog, you're 16 years old, you're basically paralyzed after this motocross accident. When, the, when, if the doctors say, you, uh, you, sorry, you're not going to be able to walk again. Who, who are you to not believe that? Tell me about facing down these kind of predictions that you would be paralyzed because it really becomes a metaphor for who you are throughout your career. Yeah, I just, I don't know. I, I, I know it might sound corny, but I thought I was put on this earth to make a difference. And, you know, I wasn't going to just roll over at that age, you know, and believe, you know, I knew that mentally, if I can visualize things, it becomes a reality. I had done that many times. Even that dirt bike, find a dirt bike, I would go to bed every night. My mom had told me, if you get the good grades, finally we buy it, you know, hmm. a, a bike. And I was not a good student. So I studied as hard as I could. But every night I would visualize myself owning that bike, riding it, the color of the helmet, the shirt, everything, because my friends had it. So I was visualizing and seeing myself doing that. And eventually I ended up getting it. So I knew with the power of visualization, even that young age that could be um, very instrumental in the who you become mm. and i'm just like something inside me you know it's like a gut feeling feeling or a hunch told me that no, this is not the end this is not the end you know you can overcome this you can overcome this i didn't know these things then but now that i've been in motivation circuit i have seen people that done extremely i mean there was a gentleman Almost the exact same scenario for him. He crashed that airplane. And the doctors told him, you will never, ever walk again. All he did, instead of feeling sorry for himself and giving up, all he did was he visualized walking out of that hospital on his own two feet. Mm -hmm. And a year later, he did that. He is actually one of my heroes. And, you know, I do talk about him and what he accomplished. And How much of your character and this strength uh, and this resilience came from your dad. Uh, I mean, your dad uh, is was not unknown in Iran. He was um, a prominent man. He's a, a political activist. He he ends up, as you've uh, said, uh, uh, spending you know more than half his life in jail. First under the Shah, later under the Khomeini regime. Uh, wh what did your dad mean to you in terms of the the character that you've you built as a teenager and then throughout your life? 
Um, half my life, uh, my dad was in prison. You know, if you ask certain people you interview, when it comes to politics, you know, they kind of go around it. They don't want to touch it. I, I don't care. I do not like this government. I don't like what they've done to Iranian people. I'm a life enhancer. I'm not a life taker. So I am on the side of the Iranian people, not the government, whether they like to hear it or not. My dad taught me strength, integrity, and one of his heroes was Churchill. Mm. And he always told me everything in life. And as he saw me struggle through certain things in life, he always said, my blood is in you. You never give up. The decision I made that night, that fateful day, or that day, I should say, that we're not going to die because I knew what he has gone through. Hmm. I knew what they had done to him. By the way, when my dad talked about being in Shah's prison, taken away from us by Savak, he says, Evan Prison, the notorious Evan Prison, he visited during the Shah's time and <laughs> during this regime. <laughs> Same place. This is, oh, you don't have to show me around. I, I know the place very well. <laughs> Wow. And uh, he told me stories that Shah's prison, compared with the, this regime's prison, was like Holiday Inn versus, you know, a lot worse. And, uh, you know, I don't want to get into politics on your show, and, but what I learned from him, what he's been through, that I'm never going to go through that hardship. You know, my life is not going to be in danger mm -hmm. like him. I mean, so many times he was threatened to be executed because all his friends were executed. And when we finally met after 20 years of separation due to political reason, the first thing as his mouth was, Dad, how did you make it? How are you still even alive? Whereas all your friends, political friends, have been executed. He said he kept telling himself he has only one son, and he's not going to die in this prison until he gets out, sees me, embraces me, says, I'm sorry for not being a full-time dad, and I love you. And, you know, that meant so much that it was a driving force behind my decision-making up there that today is not the day we're going to die. Yeah. I have some unfinished business. And as the story broke out, and people heard about it, family members, kids, you know, texting me. And, you know, because the first few days was really chaotic. I mean, it just like mm -hmm. I was in a different zone. Mm -hmm. A lot of things being thrown at me. And I told my mom and my sister, do not say anything to my dad. He was in the hospital at the time. I said, I want to be the one telling him. And when I went there and told him what happened, he just looked at me and said, I know you're going to make it. I know you're not going to give up. I know you're not going to betray the trust of those people. You know, it, it just, just simple as that. My blood is in you. Simple as that. I'm sure he was very proud of you. Um, yeah. You know, if I ask you about your migration to the United States and, you know, into the Bay Area of California after a stint in England and your late teens, you end up in, in the U.S., you stay in the U.S. 
you know, on the face of it, you seem to have become this all-American role model for many, but the road to your success has certainly been full of challenges uh, with respect to being an immigrant as well. I mean, there's this whole story of how you become one of the youngest pilots at United Airlines. The, right when there's a strike and you, 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 your, your first job at United ends up being like a week before you're fired or, or something like that, and then you're rehired later. What I did want to ask you about is uh, um, when you got hired, you've said you've talked about the story of when you get hired at United, you're, doing, you're there for your interview. You got to be young at this point because uh, you're still not that old a guy, and this is 35 years ago now. So I guess you're in your your late 20s. Uh, they ask you why you should get the job. It's an interesting question for them to ask. They say, "Why should you get the job? You're an immigrant. You've come from Iran. Why shouldn't we give this to somebody whose family's been here for generations?" What did you say? Well, my answer to them was that. You know, by the way, there were 16,000 applicants, and out of the 16,000, only 800 got hired, like one in 200. And this is right after the hostages in Iran. As a matter of fact, I will talk about that in a second, you know, how I even got my visa. Um, what I ended up telling the gentleman, uh, the captain, you know, you get two people that interview you. One is from HR that asks a different question, and the captain asks you a technical question. And you got to realize, um, when a major airline such as American Delta, United, or Air Canada hire you, they don't hire you as a pilot. They hire you as a potential captain. So they're looking at 10 years, 20 years down the road. What kind of a captain are we providing mm. for United? I told the gentleman that, you know, the interview went well. It was a very rigorous interview. There was a testing. There was a medical Done. Then there was a simulator, right? You know, it was four different gates you had to go through, and the interview was the last one. It wasn't like you get a resume and go. It was a whole week. So when he asked me that question, I said, I might not be as qualified as other pilots. I might not be as competent as other pilots, but I'm extremely confident. And I am trainable, I'm teachable, and you will find nobody out there as more enthusiastic about this job as i am and if you hire me i will be the best captain for united i will always go the extra mile not knowing 35 years later i'm going to be tested and of course you know this is not me saying my crew and i got the award to be considered the best mm. at, at a time that was my answer to him but i want to also go back you know when i was in england I realized, you know, 30, 40 years ago, England was not as wonderful and open country as it mm -hmm. is. There were not that many air, major airlines. There were only three, British Airways, BOAC, and British Caledonian. And I met a British Airways pilot, Alan Beltcliffe. He says, son, England is not the place for you. If you really want to go after your goals and dreams, you got to go to the U.S. There are a lot more airlines out there, less restrictions. And bottom line, the color of skin did matter then, you know, 40 years ago. So I took that at heart and I applied to a college or uh, aviation academy here in Oakland, California, because I was always loved California. I wanted, you know, I always visualized myself visiting Alcatraz and driving or walking the bridge of Golden Gate. You know, I always done that. I said, you know, California, that's where I'm going to go. Not Texas, not Florida. That's where I'm going to go. And I applied. 
um, for the course uh, and got accepted. And then I went to the embassy right when the hostages were taken. <laughs> the government had shots had toppled. And here I had the guts to go to the U.S. embassy where we have their host, you know, diplomats hostage and ask for visa to go there. Mm. And I was denied three times. You know, there's a there's a. I think for a lot of people listening, especially a certain type of um, immigrant, those who've those of us who've been here for a long time in the Persian community and remember how it was, you know, it was t- tough in the in the eighties, especially after the revolution, after the hostage crisis. I was a kid, but I've talked about it on this show many times. Uh, the level of discrimination and negative stereotypes and all that that the Persian community that was kind of in its infancy in Toronto at the time, for example, endured was was pretty horrible. Um, to see a guy like you, you know, become this uh, American hero, I know you don't like the word, but become this American hero, this handsome pilot, you know, and for the guy's name to be Captain Benham, <laughs> we, we take a, a perverse kind of uh, delight in this. But I am curious, you know, and I know things have changed, obviously, today. There's, I'm sure the flight crews are much more multiracial, uh, uh, even on the American flights. But w- did you have you encountered issues over the years, especially in the beginning when you were a young pilot, because you're an immigrant, immigrant or because you're of Iranian background? Was that ever an issue? Not at all. Not at all. I can honestly tell you, not even one time. I mean, the idea was in my head, but the American people embraced me, took me under their wings, and they were more helpful than anything I can even imagine. Um, and again, it had a lot to do with my attitude. They knew I was a young kid, you know, I had nothing to do with it. And this lady at the embassy, uh, the fourth time, she looked me right in the eye and says, if I give you the visa, I know you're not coming back, but I'm going to give you the visa, but you got to promise me one thing. Go there and become somebody. Do not depend on the government. I said, ma'am, I will not. I promise you I will not be dependent on the government. And I will be uh, a force for good and, you know, a, a good member of society. And that's exactly what I did. And, you know, when I come here, I literally had $200 in my pocket. And everybody at the flight school, you know, helped and taught me different ways to advance myself by becoming a grand instructor, teaching even though hostages, nobody ever, you know, rejected me or said something bad. I just, I don't know. I mean, it was like they care about who you are and how you come across than, you know, your background or your religion. That's one of the things I love about this country and Canada, for that matter. They look at you as an individual, not representation of a government or a religion. I'm, I'm very happy to hear that that was your experience. But I, I do think maybe that is a, also a function of, as you say, the energy that you put out out there and and your choice of the way you see life and the way you've wanted to see life. Um, in terms of what you've learned from all these experiences we've talked about throughout your life, the challenges that you've overcome, the fearlessness, uh, and of course the events of four years ago in terms of... Um, what uh, I will call this heroic act, even if you uh, don't see yourself as a hero. Uh, You've adopted a mantra 
of life being a one-way ticket. That's what you talk about, a one-way ticket. And I want to quote a recent video you posted on your, I think it was on your Instagram, where you say, everything turns out the way you want as long as you keep pushing forward. Don't don't take things too seriously. Life is a one-way ticket. Do you want to expand on that? Yeah, I am, again, very grateful for the experiences I've had in the past. I highly recommend people who can go travel, go visit other countries. I'm blessed to have visited 44 countries. I have tremendous respect for people, learn from their culture, and this is who I have become. I don't want to be stuck in a bubble like the Iranian government is put in a bubble around the Iranian people. They don't think you know anything else, else exists. By going out there and meeting people, you grow. And you know they promise you there's somebody coming to save you this and that. I don't believe that because it really is a one-way ticket. Before my motivation seminars were, because I'm such an energetic person and always push forward, it's called used to be called you know afterburner you know like the fighter jets you turn on those afterburner you take action you just drive through and take massive action to get accomplished but then what you know you got the money for what you got the fame for what if you don't use it now there's no buddy has ever come back from death and said they would do things differently so i say the life is a one-way ticket when I drive my car, I don't look at the rear view mirror. I don't let my mind be consumed by the things happened yesterday. Hmm. Tomorrow, I don't know, might happen, might not happen. I mean, if I could have died in that accident. Today is all I've got. I get up in the morning, when I put my head down, when I sleep, I said, thank God, you know, had a good day and I'm gonna start it over tomorrow. I don't look back at my problems or challenges. I cannot change them, but I can learn from them. I said, have said my goal, you know, one of those items on my goal list that I'm going to die when I'm 102 years old. <laughs> don't ask me why 102. I don't know. I thought it was a cool lover. And I don't want to be on my deathbed looking back, say, wish I'd done this, wish I'd done that. I uh, wish I have hope for this, wish I have hope for that. No, I just want to be kind of guy like, yep, did this, yep, did that. Okay, hang on a second. Let me ask you, just drill down on that a little bit, because this thing about don't take things too seriously, um, we hear this throughout our life, you know. Try not to take it so seriously. And I, I wish I could. Not take some things too seriously because it would make things a lot easier. It would make certain challenges a lot easier. Um, that said, you know, there's a lot of sadness in life. There's misery. There's challenges many of us face, especially Iranians in recent decades. How are we supposed to not take these things too seriously? Well, I always say you are an individual. You are God's greatest miracle. Nobody on this earth has your fingerprint. There will never, ever be another person like you. And if you get hold of yourself, if you can build yourself up, then you can make a big difference in the future. After all, you know, when you look at the leaders around the earth 
in the different countries, they're only one individual. You know, they got the nose, got two eyes, ears, two arms. They're no different than you and I. It's what they do in their mental map that makes a difference. So I tell them, don't take yourself too seriously. Don't get bogged down with what happened yesterday. Go build yourself up. Reading books is very important. I always say leaders are readers. If you read a lot of books, it will impact your life. If you read positive things, it will impact you positively. If you want to be a better cook, if you read 10 books on cooking, you become a better cook. And you can do that in all aspects of your life. In my case, I found it interesting that, you know, I can learn so much by self-help books. I have read over 350 books. And life goes on whether you want it or not. One of the most vivid experiences for me is that when somebody dies, your life and my life goes on. You know, when that person dies, nothing changes. It moves on. So why not? You know, why not get in on this one-way ticket and a train and enjoy it? Why not, instead of reading, excuse my language, garbage or the things that are destructive or getting destructive conversation, why not build on positivity? Why not be a force for good? You know? So you are in in the midst of all the messages that you're you're sending, you you are passionate about wanting to create change in Iran as well. How do you think you can help? Yes, I am a biggest advocate for human rights, and more and more I'm getting involved in it, in women's rights and children's rights. Uh, I do as much as I can help, you know, with, you know, again, the kids who are not as fortunate as our kids here, the kids are, who are yatim or don't have parents or come from a really bad, you know, families that they've been struggling. I want to create potential leaders. To me, a true leader finds potential leaders, teaches them how to lead, and gets out of the way. It's never been about me. It's about how can I create another champion, another leader. The true leaders will rise up. You can't put 85 million or maybe 84 million of effort because one video belongs to the other side yeah. under this false thing that they have created that U.S. is enemy and everybody else is enemy. And I have seen incredible people, Iranians, on your show, on, on your podcast that, you know, they've done tremendous things for themselves and humanity. I'm, I'm nothing to compare with them. I mean, just a little bit. You know, guy, you know, they have their icons in their industry and they're all from Iranian descent. I mean, that's awesome. If I ever were in charge, I would get the best brains in the world. And I set a goal in two years, we're going to change everything for the better. Same with John F. Kennedy that stood up and said, we're going to have a man on the moon in 10 years. You guys go figure it out. I guess what? They figured it out. I want to be a force for good. I'm not here about toppling any government. I tell them the truth. And that's one of the things I realize in stuff that I watch in Iran. They lie. 
And I think I did the research, even in Islam, lying is a crime. <laughs> but they're the biggest liars out there. You know, you go shoot an airliner out of the sky and try to cover it up. I was the first one to say that, no, that was an in-flight breakup. Losing an engine after takeoff is yeah, like taking a, a walk in a park. For a professional pilot, that's not a big deal. How dare you? How dare you go shoot an airliner out of the sky and cover it up? Where is the guy who pulled the trigger? I want to know. You know and I know. I mean, if I make a decision at United Airlines, I mean, they know about it. I'm sorry I'm getting a little emotional about this, but that's wrong. The people who have done this, they have to come to justice. And I do not believe in execution. I don't. Whether it's in Iran or here, I don't. Put them in jail, do whatever they have to do, you know, give them a life sentence or whatever. But the people responsible for these crimes, they have to, they have to be accountable. I mean, the stuff you see coming out of Iran is really, really painful. I'm sorry, I got a little carried okay. away, but it's okay. My my heart is with them. Let me let me ask you a final question. Sure. You've you've said, uh, you know, when you were asked once. Uh, how you want to be remembered. Now, by the way, we know we know you're going to be around until you're 102. So we're talking about 40 yes. years from now. But uh, when you were asked how you want to be remembered, you said you want to be remembered as a good man. I thought that was an interesting answer. a good person, answer. yeah. How, how do you define being a good person? I, exactly just that. I want to give as much as I can you know, one day we're going to leave this earth whether we want it or not, good or bad. I want to remember, be remembered not as a guy who was a hero or saved many lives, that he was a decent human being. He took a lot out of this life, lived a very good, full life, and he gave back to society as much as his, he could. Whether it's in this country, whether it's in Africa, whether it's in the Middle East, I've done it. And I take... M- m- more joy in that than anything material things that I own. To gain a respect of a child, that's what is important to me. To look at someone and says, you know what? I was where you were. And now I'm on top of the hill and here's my hand. I want to bring you up here because the future belongs to you. I always said the children are the message we send to a future we never ever see. What message are we sending? In the last video I put out, there's a young boy being interviewed, and the guy asked him, you know, I put a little musical ad a few hours ago. The, the guy who was interviewing the boy says, what is your dream? And the kid says, what is dream? Hmm. You know, that hurts. That really hurts. They have created a society that kids cannot even dream anymore. And you know, guess what? Dream is free. You can dream anything. You can visualize anything. I never forget, I did an interview in LA and uh, my Farsi reading and writing is not that good. And we were catching an Uber from the studio to LAX. My girlfriend's sitting next to me and you know, people will start responding to this live interview. And she said, look at this guy. I mean, lots of emojis and all of that. You know, caught her eyes. It's so full of emojis. That, but what does he say? Just something like, I think it's important. I looked at her and said, 
didn't quite understand the word. So I took a picture of it and sent it to my media guy back in Northern California. I said, Ali, please translate to this to me because I don't quite understand it. My Farsi is a lot better now than it was two, three years ago, by the way. So he says, Captain, he says that he was just about to commit suicide. And when he heard your life story in this interview, he stopped. 30 minutes ago, he stopped. And then he's going to go after his dream to become a medical doctor. I turned around and said that to Malia. She started tearing up and crying. That is success to me. If I can reach out, touch someone else's life. If I can do it, you know, 10 people or 1,000 people, even better. So... I want to be a force for good, and I want to tell people that, you know, I'm just like you. Didn't get a lucky break, but if you visualize things in your head and you're passionate about it, in everything you do, not you don't have to be a part of it. You can be the best chef. You can be the best teacher. You can be the best doctor, best lawyer, and go for it and do it. Captain Christopher Bahnam, it's been a pleasure. I have to thank you for uh, all the time and effort you've put in. Uh, um, thank you for telling us that story of, of, of the events of four years ago in, in the detail that you did. Um, it's really been uh, an education around, I'm always reminded talking to someone like you, how uh, your mantra, in fact, is, is uh, it resonates in the, in the, the sense that you'd never know what the day is going to bring each day. And, and it really is that one-way ticket. So uh, keep pushing forward. You're an inspiration. Thank you for this today. Thank you so much. And I always tell people, don't wish things were easier. Wish you were better. I hope we talk again Thank soon. Thank you for having me on board today. It really was a pleasure uh, doing this interview and getting to know you and what you're doing. I'm really, really, really impressed. Thank you, sir. Hope to see you before too long. On on a uni- so on a United flight, where uh, I'm going to get the extra extra pretzels because uh, I know you. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, my pleasure. Take care, Isaac. Good office. Bye bye. Good office. Thank you. Bye bye. Captain Christopher Borzu Behnam, the pilot, aviation expert, motivational speaker, human rights advocate. Uh, you can find him on Instagram at Captain Behnam Persian also at Captain Behnam Official. And Christopher Behnam, the captain, joined us from the Bay Area, California today. Microphone's back on for Captain Reza, Groovy Shia, and the fabulous Keon. Huh. Christopher Bannam. Well, I very much enjoyed that chat. He's a, uh, it's no surprise, he's a motivational speaker. Mm -hmm. Right. He certainly uh, has all kinds of, I I like somebody who's thought that much about their perspective on Mm -hmm. life. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel like you could ask him it's like Leonard Cohen or something. (laughs) Just ask him questions and he'll have answers. 
thoughtful uh, answers. Did you, as an aspiring pilot, yes, did you? Yes, uh, I loved every second of it. And hmm. you know what my takeaway is actually? What is your takeaway? Is smile. That's what I'm going to take away from his him. dedication. His dedication to smiling. Like when he was talking about the muscles and the face that most people don't use. In actors' cases, that's entirely untrue. But I loved what he was saying that if you smile, it actually has a chemical reaction. Your body has a chemical reaction to it. So you can actually, when they say fake it till you make it, you can do that with your feelings. Then I love that. I want to try it. And, uh, yeah, I think he sees that as part of the yeah. prescription of success. Know. You know, the, I started the interview saying, "Why well, are you really always this happy?" <laughs> yeah. And he just is like, I don't traffic in uh, darkness. I'm, I'm gonna, mm. I'm gonna it. keep positive. Yeah, love it's it. it's I very, love it. very interesting. But also the, the philosophy of, um, uh, it's a one way ticket. Uh, is a it really resonates with me. One thing this. is humility and the fact that he's like, I'm not a hero. I'm a servant. Like mm. that mannerism, that humbleness i mean I'm, I'm, here's the thing i'm not trying to just blow smoke up his rear end he's a fantastic guy and doesn't need our praise he really doesn't mm -hmm. he truly is a hero mm -hmm. but uh heroes who aspire and inspire i um i i respect more than heroes who are just figures you know and you got who are heroes who are just figures uh marlon brando james dean they don't they didn't do things <laughs> no they did a lot of things but it's the there is a there is a there's they're a not humility anyway. there's they're, a they're, mannerism they're oh yeah stars well, they're, icons, they're stars yeah. so some people are but yes hmm. I loved it. I loved but yeah, your point is well made, although yeah. it, it yeah. derailed the point I was trying to make. <laughs> I made a point and you just started talking what, about whatever you want. What uh, is, what my point was the, about the one-way ticket. Yes. He, his way of, you know, he's yeah. basically, I mean, there's a lot of well-worn adages that, you know, mm -hmm. life is short, yeah. mm. seize the day, tentandavia, whatever, mm. uh, the way it must be, uh, carpe diem, you know. <laughs> but, um, but, but, you know this idea that uh, look—it's a one-way ticket. Don't yeah. waste your time. Mm. Spend Nobody every gets day. out alive. And that's yeah. yeah. There you go. Mm. There you go. Alive. Yeah. At the end, we're all. Let that go. be a lesson, Reza. Write that, that down on your wall. <laughs> Keon, what did you? Um, I, uh, what did the good captain uh, <laughs> sprinkle? Not, not in to your be confused way? with Reza. <laughs> yes. No, the good captain. There's no takeaway the there. Actual captain. <laughs> yeah. um, I like for. For a while, I entered his world. I guess I never put myself in that shoe, in the shoes of a pilot. Mm. And I realized just how calm you have to be, how collected and just, you know, at peace you have to be to do a job like that. You're responsible mm. for hundreds of people's lives. It's mm. crazy, man. I, like, I put myself in his shoes. And how, did I just, you, how did you enter his world? I did, like just listening to the interview. Oh, oh you know? I thought you meant I, you I, spent like, some time a, as a no, flight attendant or no, something. No, what? <laughs> well, you <laughs> said for a while I entered no, his like, world. No, during the interview, oh, I, I see. you know, okay. while he was you talking, I imagined, uh, yeah. and I imagined myself. I just like in that moment of trying to save people, like we're all gonna die. We're all just gonna die. Like, I just, I could not. I could never be a pilot ever. I can't. I'm not even a good driver. So oh. it just, I have so much respect for pilots. It's so now. true that especially like. In those in those situations, first of all, we know all the statistics, notwithstanding yeah. the harrowing experience that Captain uh, Benham had, which was, you know, an outlier in thirty years of thirty four years of mm -hmm. flying uh, professionally for United Airlines. But but um, even when you know all the statistics, like yeah. it's more dangerous to walk out of your house yeah. or get mm -hmm. in a car or all of those things, take the bus than it is to be on a plane. It's still, I find, in the midst of that turbulence. Yeah. The tone of the captain's voice, or even the flight attendant, when they come on and go, uh, you know, like if the captain's going, uh, not sure what's happening <laughs> <Yeah>. here. 
<laughs> Everybody just hey. be calm, but frankly, uh, you know, like you'd, you'd freak out, right? And then yeah. Stewart so Keon to, comes on and she's like, <laughs> Yeah, no, there's no calmness. So to have moment. Captain Ben on going, you know, yeah. it's going to be all right. So We're going to take care of this. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, but those 30 seconds that he describes where he terrifying. was like, what am I, oh. I, I, I have to pull myself together here. Yeah. God. Another thing that was surprising is his age. He's, I really thought he was like, like early 50s or, but he said no, he's in 60s. What does that have to do with anything? No, smiling, <laughs> yeah. smiling. What are you getting at? Keeps you young, rejuvenated oh. and happy. Oh, I see. You, yeah. oh, that's what I I'm getting, see. that's what yeah, he was yeah. saying. That he, was his you point. Say you think Did he you looks young. Listen to the interview. <laughs> yeah. And uh, he looks very good. Shia? Yes. Uh, uh, he used actually a metaphor, metaphor for mm-hmm. like when you, um, when you bring your hound out of the, car out of the window of the car mm. and at oh, some yeah, yeah. yeah at some uh, speed your hand is gonna fly you know yeah. mm. so that was my favorite uh, habit when i was a kid and yeah I, me too yeah the a, thing yeah. where you yes, do this yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. i love that That's thing so because you feel the wind pushing <laughs> yes. your uh, yeah. I don't know what the physics <laughs> term. <laughs> the g-force the g-force is that the g-force <laughs> no that's not yeah. Yeah. Or at, yeah, maybe yeah. Huh. Huh. what is it in persian the power of speed, right? Power that, of it? kind of, yeah. yeah power okay. of speed. Power of See, kindness? look at that. My oh, Persian's so good. Oh, well, what's, I didn't know that. What's the first part? Niru. 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 Anyway. What a, yeah. We're that, all thinking like, is it? Is it? it sounds sounds <laughs> just doesn't sound we're right. All thinking about <laughs> it. But I did have some. With my Sounds like a bad Persian soap opera. I'm gonna tattoo that on myself. Anyway, that's what. Would you like the baklava or the? All right. Well, thank you to. The captain, Christopher Bandnam, for coming on our program. And he does have some inspirational words if you want to follow him on uh, social media. It's well worth it. Um, and thanks to you guys. See Thank you on you. Thursday, Shia, for the Contemporary History of Iran. Uh, see you guys next Monday for the next episode of Rook. Uh, oh, we have Dr. Iman Tahiri yes. coming up. Oh, yes. Nice. The surgeon, turn, a surgeon and poet. Turned social wow. media sensation. Yes. Yeah. Science and art. How does that work? There you go, Keon. <laughs> you know, you spent a, a little time in that world. Science and art? <laughs> you spent some time. Because no. <laughs> she said, she said I, I had the, uh, uh, you know, I for a while I spent some time in his world. Yeah. I thought yeah. she meant in He's aviation. No, like in Turns that, out she's talking imagine. about listening to the interview I just well, did. Don't I you spent guys, some time in her his world. Don't well, you she's been watching a lot of history <laughs> channels. That's why she talks like this. I didn't spend time in his world. I spent time in his world. What do you mean? World. Don't you do that when you listen to someone talk about an experience? Don't you put yourself in that uh, time? Yeah, but you should say that. Not like Peter Dinklage <laughs> in Game of Thrones. I spend time, some time in his world. It sounds better. It sounds better that it's, way. You're, you're, it's whatever you I'm said. Poet, definitely Reza, sound, okay. sounded better than Reza. Right? Anyway, for sure. But for real, imagining Pan Am like flight attendant, Keon is walking <laughs> like through the aisle, bringing you food, getting it all. I, I think this is full time. <laughs> this is full time for Rook for today. Big thank you for uh, to all of you for joining us for this ride. Remember, our website is rookmedia.com, rookmedia.com, where you can find all of our previous episodes, our guests, 
our different uh, programs that happen on the Rook Media Network. Thanks to the amazing team who put this show together. Savvy, Savvy Roham, talented Anahita Ponta, the artist, the fabulous Keon, Super Parisa, Alay Merdod, Captain Reza, Groovy Shia. Thank you to all of you out there for supporting us and sharing our content. Please subscribe if you haven't done so already. You can do that on any of our platforms where you can leave us a review as well. Thanks again to Captain Christopher Borzu Bernam. Find me on Instagram at Gian Gomeshi. And as ever, Mizunbashi. Bashi.